Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to gather together today, um, just to be in, to be inspired, to have hope, to come together uh, in unity as community of followers of you, just loving our neighbors as you've loved us. We just ask that through today's gathering, through Amy sharing and speaking and um, just giving us extra history and insights into our beautiful brother, uh, Muslim brothers and sisters today, that each of us would just have that bigger capacity for compassion and understanding someone else's journey, someone else's process, someone else's life story. Uh, we just ask that through today's talk, through our discussion, through our potluck even later, that each of us finds that sense of uh, just oneness, that, that sense of embrace of the community that follows Jesus Christ, that today we would just find healing and hope for tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, <coughs> Professor Amy Mapinga. <laughs> Did I say that right? No, but that's okay. How do you say it? Well, I'm told you say Papinga, but there, Papinga? Are, there are other people that say Papinga that have the same last name. But I didn't used to say it that way, but I thought I heard you saying it the other way. All right. Um, <laughs> so she's going to share with us today. Uh, the one thing um, I want you guys to know is that... I, we talked before, and she might just ask some questions as we go, too. So it might yeah. be, even though we usually teach and then go to discussion, uh, we're, we might just make it a little more rounded as we're going today. And so we'll just see where this flies. Your, um, well, maybe I'll go here. No, I'm going to sit down, and you're going to sit here. I'm just going to relax and take it out. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you're newer, we have a couple new faces. We do a teaching. the most excited. Teaching discussion. Um, we'll do uh, a moment of communion, um, some announcements. We do prayer circles here at the end, so circles of eight we'll share something we're thankful for, if we have any prayers. It's also something you can just be a fly on the wall for. But even if you're new, we invite you to take part in discussion or anything you want to. Uh, we believe that coming to a church gathering is more than just listening to someone, that there's, there's an engagement, there's a being a part of community, and we try to do that. And then today we actually have a potluck afterwards, which... Uh, you're more than welcome to stick around for as well. There's usually way too much food, and um, it's a good chance to meet everybody. But other than that, um, yeah, you can just okay. hit the button, or I can pull it down and click for you if you want. No, no, it's, it's right there. All right. All right, sweet. Okay. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, so um, as Luke said, my name is Amy Poppinga, and um, I guess I'm connected uh, to Luke by being friends with um, Brian Renzel, who just came from a cub run for potluck right there, um, for about 13 years, and then um, have been good friends with Kelly for the last three years. So, um, And they lived in our basement for a good six months, so we're very close and very tight. Um, and so Luke and I got together last um, spring to talk about having me come to uh, talk to your community um, and share a little bit about um, Islam. So one of the, um, and so I guess the way that I want to do that today is I do have like, I have like a fancy, I put in an hour or maybe less, so that, because I know it's going to be less than that, so I can make that happen. But um, uh, I, as I do that, I do want this to sort of be interactive, so I think there are probably a lot of questions, um, and I, I never kind of know where people are, so different church groups that I talk to, um, sometimes there's a lot of information in the room that people come in with. Um, Sometimes it's not the most accurate information, but there's a lot of information, and so 
Um, I like to have people ask clarifying questions as we go along. There's no question that's off limits. And that's actually something I say that's been modeled for me by Muslim um, friends who um, graciously come and share their time in my classroom in the space where um, I teach that uh, they have heard every question under the sun and would rather people just ask um, so that, especially sometimes because the, the main questions we have are questions that we're uncomfortable asking, but that's what we want to know. So it's important to me that you know that you can ask anything and that I'll do my best to answer it. Um, just a little bit about kind of who I am. I won't spend a ton of time on this, but I teach in the history department at Bethel University, which is in Arden Hills, not very far from here. Um, Bethel is a, although it's not technically an evangelical school, the vast majority of our student body come from evangelical backgrounds. Um, Bethel is, uh, I mean, primarily a, a Christian school in the sense that students do, they whether they're actively sort of um, believing in Christianity or not, they do come there kind of stating that that is the place that they're operating from. That can lead to very cool and very um, enriching things as a professor teaching as a Christian. It doesn't mean I teach from a Christian perspective in my content, but it often means that the types of conversations I can have with students are different than they might be in other places where I've taught. And I was a high school teacher for years before I, I started teaching at Bethel. The disadvantage of students coming to Bethel is that they tend to be surrounded by people that think like they do. Um, and they don't get exposure to um, lots of different types of diversity actually, but specifically what they're not getting is the benefit of being in community and living with people who come from a different religious tradition than they do. So there's kind of like a reinforcing that happens over their very important four years of development as opposed to like a, a, the, the good process of really being challenged as to why you believe what you believe. So, but that's where I teach and I've been there for 10 years um, and taught high school prior to that. Um, I also kind of work as a um, religious diversity consultant, like specifically working with businesses that tend to have um, religious diversity is either something they're trying to do better or something that they are maybe struggling with. So maybe I come in because there's been an issue that has um, occurred and getting businesses to better understand the importance of having that of religion as a part of people's whole health and a whole, um, like that we are, as a holistic person, we, it's very difficult actually to relegate religion, religion or spirituality if you know that's kind of the way you think about it to leave it in the car at the, you know, like when you pull into wherever your place of employment is. But we're not very good at that in the United States because kind of through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and even really up until September 11th, we just decided that religion is so contentious that we just want it to be pushed to the private space. Um, so, I, I, and it became very litigious and a lot of, you know, suing in workplaces and schools. And so we kind of put it on back burner, but that kind of changed. And I think it's been partially changed with September 11th. But um, just a teeny bit about why I teach about Islam. When I was a high school teacher, I used to teach at Moundsview High School, or at, at um, Irondale High School, which is in um, the Moundsview district um, on the north side of the cities. And um, I uh, was a history teacher, and so I felt like, oh, I know a lot about um, different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And um, However, I had quite a few students, this was in the late 90s, I had quite a few students who were um, Muslim from a variety of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. At this time, um, the Twin Cities was um, increasingly we were having Somali immigrants coming um, as refugees from Somalia, and that was starting to come into our school. And I found that um, for myself as a history teacher, but even more broadly our faculty as well as our staff, we just did not know what to do with like, like okay, some of the, the disconnects that we're having with trying to help students connect is it because of their culture? Is it because of their religion? Is it 
it their religious expression of culture? Is it their cultural expression of religion? And again, we just kind of decided like we just don't do religion at all. And so, but we, then we were failing students for whom they come from a religious tradition where religion can't be relegated to your car, like at the time, your Walkman or your cigarettes. Like you couldn't just leave religion in the car, it had to come into you because of the way that you practice your religion. And that was very different because since Christianity was really the main sort of religion that was pushing into um, schools, um, Christianity is a orthodox religion, it's based on right belief, and Islam is an orthopraxic tradition that's based on right action. And the way that I kind of get people to think about that is if I think, and I sometimes do with students, is I say, okay, what does a Christian look like? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and I bet if you think about that for a minute, and I say, what does it mean to be a Christian? The first things that come to our mind are things that we believe, like beliefs, right? And um, things that we think. And Islam, being an orthopraxic tradition, it's based on right action. So when I say to you, okay, think of, like, picture a Christian in your mind, my guess is, is that we all might have very different, like, visions of what that looks like, who that looks like. It's a person, they look a particular, like, they would, it would be different for all of us. So if I tell you, okay, picture a Muslim, I'm guessing that most of you right now are picturing a woman in a hijab. You know, so um, because Islam is um, an orthopraxic tradition, it's very visible because actions are visible. And that actually has been a huge conviction for me. I'll bring it all back around, but at the end, I actually want to talk about the ways in which, for me as a Christian studying Islam, spending so much time studying a religion that is about actions and that is very visible, especially like even in the last couple of weeks here, is something that's really challenged me when I think about what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, how do people see it? How do people know it? What do people think about it who aren't Christians? So, um, anyway, so, so all of that to say, I felt like I didn't connect well with those students, and I felt like that was kind of, that was a failure on my part. I was a history teacher. I should have um, the knowledge to do that. And so I went to, back to graduate school with the intention of um, getting a master's degree to then work with our school district, had positions called cultural liaisons, and cultural liaisons really worked with teachers and families to try to better educate teachers about their student population, and vice versa, to try to connect with student family, like families of students where we, we sensed that there was some, not the same kind of level of integration to work with those families to help them better understand um, the American school system. And so I entered into graduate school with the intention of getting a master's degree in Islamic studies, um, which is kind of a broad kind of discipline that talks about the, the cultural, historical, theological, <coughs> sociological kind of study of Islam as a whole. And um, I started that program the first week of August in the fall of 2001. So um, I started it, you know, a month before September 11th. And at the time when I started it, many people around me were like, what are you going to do with that? Like, that's, you know, like, it's not really on anyone's radar, and that seems kind of, like, what are you going to do with that? And um, I feel like, like, God was preparing me for something because um, I've been able to do a lot with it. And um, mostly I feel like God has called me to... Um, make Islam accessible and to help promote relationships between Muslims and Christians because when I look around I feel like a lot of the um, prejudice and the misinformation that I see circulated in the United States unfortunately comes from my own community. So I feel like I have a responsibility to um, our community. So just a couple of statistical types of things. So to show you the research piece, the professor piece. Um, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, it's the second largest. There's a lot of different reasons for that. This same statistic is mimicked in the United States. Um, Islam's the fastest growing religion in the United States. Um, it, is, it is the second largest, although the, the 
the, um, the statistical spread between Christianity and Islam is very, very vast. So Christianity and, man and different versions of Christianity by far um, outweigh Islam. So I feel like this is even the, one of those statistics that depending on how I read it to you and who it's coming from, it can be fine or it can be scary. So if I say Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and the second largest and the same thing's happening in America, like, it, can, it can scare us. And at the same time, at the same time, I mean, there's reasons for that. It's because um, we, uh, uh, Muslims, regardless of cultural and ethnic background, tend to have slightly higher birth rates than do white Americans who make up the vast majority of Christians in this country. So also, um, yes, it's growing faster because the growth has already occurred um, as it comes to uh, Christianity. So I feel like that's it's not something we need to be alarmed about, but depending on how we want to read it, I'd sell more books if I did read it the other way. But, um, so I think, I think people are more interested. So um, we, uh, we read or hear about Islam every day. I mean, you cannot avoid it. Um, and so I think it's really important to sort of I think a central question I even would want you to think about is um, if we had more time, I would actually have a start with saying, okay, put on a piece of paper with a couple of folks. What do you know about Islam? And then the second question would be like, what are your sources for that? Like, where have, where have we heard that? Where have you um, learned about it? And so the challenge comes in for a Christian is that I think about how, um, would I want those to be the same sorts of sources that I would want Muslims to learn about Christians from? So that kind of, for me, is one of the reasons I do this, because I think it's really important. And I, I just want to say, too, Luke, like, I think, like, I'll thank you right now. I thank you for giving me this opportunity, because um, a lot of times, uh, sometimes I've been contacted by churches, and when I explain, when they say, oh, we want you to come talk about Islam, but then I explain what I'm going to talk about, it's like, that's not what we're looking for. <laughs> that's not the type of um, information that we're looking for. So, um, I mean, this is the central part of why I do it, is that I think that Christians have a responsibility to learn about other religions in order to interact with and develop relationships um, with people of other faiths. We have much in common with um, Muslims, uh, not just in terms of our history, like our shared history, but even the, um, the types of concerns that we have about um, our society and the things that we want for our families and um, the, the ways in which we want to be able to um, express our love for God. So. It's interesting to me that um, there is such a need to sort of separate from Islam, and I think that that, that that desire to separate and to make Islam be very foreign to us says a lot more about us. Um, we need to be pretty self-reflective about why that is, why it's easier. I mean, I've had students say to me at the end of a semester, um, I kind of wish I didn't know some of this. And I appreciate that honesty, but when I say, why do you, why? Like, what is, what's behind that? It's because it was easier not to know. It was very easier to have this be foreign and um, have it be something that I felt like in a way I was actually being, quote, a good Christian by protecting myself from knowing it. Um, and to be honest about what, what, what is that? What's, what's that about? So, um, so I just want to do a teeny bit. So again, to show you that like I don't want to sh show that I studied something and whatever. But um, <laughs> so just a teeny bit about Islamic history. This is just a map of the Middle East in the 6th century. Islam does kind of start in a geographic location like all religions do, um, and so it starts in uh, what's present-day Saudi Arabia, um, and so just a teeny bit of background, so this is a map of Saudi Arabia in the 6th century, which is when uh, Islam quote starts uh, through um, a revelation to the Prophet Muhammad, who I'll talk about in a second, but then um, it starts in kind of like a, what was really um, historically, this is a historical framing of it, like a backwater, like a very... Um, like a trading town, nothing certainly didn't rival the great cities of the day, like Jerusalem or Rome or Constantinople. Like 
What? Like Bethlehem. Like Bethlehem. There you go. Yeah, that's right. We forget that's where we started. We tend to think Christianity started in Iowa. <laughs> but um, but uh, this is this is Mecca today. This is um, at the Prophet's Mosque. Maybe some of you have even seen these images. So this is an image that was taken at Hajj, um, which I'll talk about in a second um, in Saudi Arabia. Um, so this is during the, this was two years ago, so this was 2014, but you can see all the little white, that's all people. So there's about um, two, two and a half million people that are, yeah, that are gathered in this space and gather every year. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But Islam is one of the three um, Abrahamic traditions. So Muslims trace their lineage back to the prophet Abraham, and that's a whole long story, but um, Muslims see themselves as uh, tied to Abraham through the lineage of Abraham's um, maidservant, Hagar. And so um, Hagar is a figure who we see, obviously, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, but Hagar also shows up in the Quran, in the Holy Book of Muslims. Um, and it's a very similar story, and um, Muslims put uh, a very special emphasis on this story because as in the book of Genesis, same thing, um, Hagar is the first person to give God a name. So in both Genesis and in the Quran, um, in Genesis, Hagar um, speak. God sees her. Hagar cries out to God, and she's kind of, I mean, she's angry um, with God. When she cries out to him, she challenges him, and God responds to her and provides for her, and she says, you know, you are Elroy, you are who saw me, like you saw me. Um, and I, I think that's an important um, story for students to hear, too, because um, the idea that, like, for some, they like to frame Islam as a very distant view of God, it's not personal, it's not interactive, and that's what makes ours better, um, is that ours is very personal, and um, Islam is very personal, and it really starts with this personal story of Hagar saying back to God, like, you saw me, like, you saw my hurt, you saw my need. Um, and so for Muslims, they see, and I think like a good way to understand it, and again, this is all simple, like I could spend a day on everything, each sentence I'm going to say, but like for, for uh, Muslims, the view is like there is one God, and God um, interacted with the world through the prophet, I mean through um, like Adam and Eve, through Noah, many of the prophets in the um, Old Testament or in the Quran, but that um, God essentially gave a message to the world through the prophet Abraham, um, and then what happens, unfortunately, is that um, as, as the, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Israel, as Judaism grows, it became very, very insular. Um, and so Judaism is not, a, is not a missionary religion. I mean, there's not an emphasis on becoming larger. Instead, the emphasis was becoming smaller. Um, that over the course of the Old Testament, as we see the, um, the nation of Israel kind of continuously rebelling against God, um, calling for a king, calling for God to intervene, that doesn't go very well. Um, but then God kind of breaks the message open wider by bringing Jesus. And for Muslims, Jesus is not divine, but Jesus is a prophet of God. Jesus was designed to be brought to this earth, but he's born of a virgin birth. So Muslims believe in the idea of the, the virgin birth. And that the intention was God's interruption into humanity to say, this message needs to be broken open wider. You're, you're looking for, you're, you're not expanding the message, so it needs to be corrected. So Jesus comes as like a corrective measure. So it's like Judaism. God has to intervene with Christianity, but Muslims wouldn't say Christianity, they'd say Jesus, and Jesus is, if you look at Jesus' message, and I'm kind of speaking from an Islamic theological viewpoint, if you look at Jesus' message, Jesus broke open, like, what were, like, Judaism was headed in the wrong direction, so Jesus broke it open, and then for Muslims, it gets tricky, because they say, here's the thing, like, after Jesus' death, instead of, like, correcting the message, 
those who follow Jesus, instead of putting the emphasis back on God, because in the view, a prophet's job is to call people back to God, people went and they started worshiping Jesus. And so then they put all the emphasis on Jesus, and they started this new thing called Christianity, and all of the emphasis was on Jesus. And so in the Muslim viewpoint, then what happens is that several centuries later, in the 6th century, in the um, late 500s, in Saudi Arabia, in what's today Saudi Arabia, God breaks into humanity again through the prophet Muhammad, um, and gives Muhammad a message, and then if we look at the sort of central tenets of Islam, that message was broken open and corrected because Islam is for all people, and Islam is has sort of a different kind of theological framing than Christianity does. So for Muslims, it's like Islam grows out of Christianity and Judaism, um, so it doesn't see itself as fully in contrast to those, and I think that's a really important thing for Christians to understand. Um, so it freaks um, students out to read parts of the Quran and to see like people from the Bible um, in the Quran. So I saved that for Fridays so they can think about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, Islam starts in 610 AD in what's presently Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Muhammad um, was, uh, he is considered to be the most revered prophet uh, in Islam. Uh, Muslims call Jesus, call Jesus Isa. It's the Arabic name for Jesus and it's not uncommon to um, meet Muslims who are named Isa. So next to Muhammad, uh, Jesus is the most revered prophet in Islam and is considered to be the most perfect human. So Muhammad, and we'll see a little bit, has to function in a very different capacity than what Jesus did from a Muslim perspective, and therefore Jesus is sort of revered as this person of perfect peace, that Jesus was the manifestation of peace um, in the world. And Muhammad, who is considered to be a man, he's not considered to be divine in any way, but Muslims believe that Muhammad was chosen by God to bring the message of monotheism back to a population that had lost touch with it. So um, Muhammad preached about the idea that there was a one God, that we need to stop um, worshiping um, multiple gods. And gods functioned in Arabia much like um, sort of gods we see in parts of the Old Testament. Like you pray to a certain god for rain, you pray to a god for protection, you pray to a god for fertility, things like that. And um, Muhammad, who came from a very lowly background, um, Muslims believe was chosen by God, and that Muhammad was sort of a downer. He was not a fun person to be around. He was always sort of trying to like call people out on their behavior. And he would go and he would escape to the hillsides around Mecca, where he lived on the week. I mean, on the weekends, like on the days he wasn't, he wasn't working. Um, and he would um, he would pray in caves, and he would pray and he would meditate. And for Muslims, the belief is, is that in the year 610 AD, when Muhammad was about 40 years old, um, the angel Gabriel, whose name is Jibreel in Arabic and the Quran, same angel Gabriel from the Bible, appears to Muhammad and um, commands Muhammad to recite. And Muhammad is, is frightened by this and says, recite what? And he's commanded again to recite. And then when Muhammad begins to speak, kind of in an out-of-body-like experience, Muslims believe that these is, this is the first revelation of the Quran. These are the first words that God spoke to um, the population in Arabia. So this is like a lot in a very short amount of time. So I'm just gonna, yeah. Well, no, because, um, and I'll kind of get to that. The idea of the Holy Spirit works, there's no Holy Spirit in the Islamic concept. There is the notion that God speaks to you through conscience, um, but he speaks to you through conscience through through angels, and so like angel, so so yes, in the sense that angel Gabriel is sort of the representation of God, and then when Muhammad begins to speak, Muslims regard the Quran as the literal word of God. 
So like every word in the Quran was not written by a different author and they don't see Muhammad as being the author. They see it as when Muhammad would speak, it was revelation. It was the words that come out are the words of God. So, but the, you, God often would appear to you through angels as opposed to say like a conviction of the spirit. So, yeah. So um, for Muslims, uh, Muhammad's going to receive these recitations over about a 23-year period of time. So not one continuous recitation, but he receives them at different points. Sometimes there's witnesses to Muhammad receiving a recitation. And um, after Muhammad's death, long after, actually about 100 years after, the recitations will be recorded into what today Muslims consider to be their holy book, the Quran. And we have to kind of dispense a little bit of historical judgment for a minute because this is a culture that is um, based on oral recitation, as were most at the time. Um, and that's a protective measure. If you're living in the desert and if you're mostly a Bedouin population that travels around, you don't carry anything that ultimately is going to break you if it gets stolen from you. Writing things down, we sort of think about, I mean, how many phone numbers do any of us know anymore, right? Like, if I lost my phone, I couldn't even call my husband. I don't know. <laughs> so, like, it, it, the point is, is that memorizing things is a protective measure because you, you memorize it and you pass it down to your children that way. So the whole notion that it wasn't, quote, written down is not, is not something we should just sort of dispel and say, well, that's, like, it actually was a protective measure <coughs> because other people could corroborate it. But that's not what I remember. That's not what I remember. So it actually kind of functions historically as like a protective measure. But um, Islam spreads very quickly. So this is a whole big long story. But Islam starts by the time of Muhammad's death in 632. He only is a prophet and leads the community for about 22 years. Islam has spread to the area that you see in the red um, on present day Arabia. So you can see there the little city of Mecca. So by the time of his death, this is how far it has spread. Um, by, the, by 750, it has spread to everything that you see there to the extent of what the pink is. So Islam spreads very quickly, both as a religion but also as an empire. Um, and there's, there's kind of all sorts of reasons for that. But um, Islam spreads at a time in history where the other empires surrounding it are weakened and are tired of fighting each other. There had not been a whole lot going on in Arabia, in Arabia to unite the population there. And they become very united around both a political and a um, religious message. And Islam spreads very quickly because it spreads along the trade routes that that population was using to trade the goods of those empires around it, the Byzantines and the Persians that were always fighting with one another. So they kind of already had a highway ready to go, but instead of, um, instead of bringing goods along those highways, they started to spread an empire instead. And so um, really quickly um, about Islamic beliefs. So you see it's already 11, so you're going to need to do like that oh, whatever. Yeah. Well, people are looking okay. about it. Serving chili while I'm still up here. <laughs> so there's five basic beliefs in Islam. So as I said, or, or I'm sorry, not beliefs. I should say tenets. So these are all things that um, Muslims everywhere believe. So regardless of your sect or your um, your uh, your version of Islam, all Muslims are united by five core tenets. We say, and we don't just say beliefs because again, it's an orthopraxic tradition. So it's based on actually practicing. Um, a commitment to God. Islam means, uh, the word means submission. So Islam is um, Arabic. Arabic is a Semitic language. So for any, I don't know, like Hebrew or Aramaic uh, speakers uh, in the room, um, the roots in Arabic are similar to roots in Hebrew. So in this word Islam, the root there is the S-L-M. That word means submission. It's the same root in the word shalom, which means peace. So, um, and submission means peace. So submission means, and if you think about it, I give myself over to something. 
So whether I'm giving myself over to this belief in God or when we say that we're at peace with something, it means I've given, my, I've given up part of myself to be at peace with whatever it is that I'm giving myself over to. So Islam means submission to God, and Muslim is one who submits themselves to God. So Muslim is the, the adherent of Islam. And so the significance um, of this is that every action, every movement, every word is seen to be an act of submission to God. So for Muslims, and this is very similar in some respects to Judaism, the way that I eat, the way that I clean myself before I go into prayer, the way that I conduct myself with people um, that are of the, the opposite um, sex or gender than myself. Everything, you know, we can see it as being very rule-based, but it's because every single action that I do needs to be a reminder of the ways in which I'm committed to one central idea in my life, and that's the idea that I've submitted to God. So um, there are these five basic tenets. The first one is what's referred to as the shahada. Um, shahada means testimony. It means like the central core of what it means to be Muslim. And this comes from the Quran. This comes from um, one of Muhammad's revelations. But there is no God, little g, but God, capital G, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And this is something that... Um, uh, Muslims, you whisper it into the um, ear of a child when they are born in a Muslim family, so usually it's the, um, the paternal grandmother's uh, kind of honor to do this. So when a child is born, the shahada is the first thing that a child hears. This doesn't like offer some kind of like protective covering. It's just like it's a way of um, bringing them into uh, a, a Muslim family. But this is like Islamic belief wrapped up in one statement, that it's based on the idea that there is one God, um, there is, it's a monotheistic tradition, and there is no other gods beside um, that god. This is the Shahada written in Arabic. In Arabic, you read from right to left, so it goes that way. And so um, Allah is the um, Arabic word for God. If you were a Christian in a Coptic church in Egypt, you would also use the word Allah to talk about God. So, like, Allah is the Arabic word for, like, the notion of one creator God, the God of the Abrahamic traditions. So the significance is like, this is Islam in a nutshell. Um, it's simple, it's cohesive, um, and it's very black and white. So, um, and there's, there's gray in all religions, but Islam as an orthoprax tradition, um, I think sort of really is attracted to the idea of things being um, very black and white in terms, of, uh, in terms of certain practices. So there's no room for dispute uh, with that. So, yeah. Um, so, Okay, so like uh, prophets, like uh, you know, or even people who've been so affected by you know what they heard from God that they, you know, like Joan of Arc, yes, stuff right, like that, um, and other prophets. So they're they're not considered to be like Muhammad is more of like a like a Metatron kind of a thing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, Muhammad brings this message. Now there can be other prophets that like confirm the message, but there can't be other prophets that deter from the message. So the idea that like God still speaks to people or that God still reveals himself is something that um, is a little bit tricky for Muslims because the whole, like, truth comes from what gets decided in community, not individually. So like for Muhammad, Muhammad's whole goal through God is to start a community, and that community is what keeps us on the right path. Community is what, like, we have to sort of affirm like things within a community. So individual experiences after Muhammad are sort of seen as like, that's not your perception. That's your perception. And that, that might not gel. And so therefore, like if the community rejects that, then 
we're going to stick with what the community believes because that's how people get led astray. Like, they, they would see that as, like, that's what happened in Christianity. Those crazy people after Jesus died all decided. You know, they, like, they only want to believe that the one person was able to be touched and spoken through. They believe again. that, like, Muhammad, um, that all the prophets prior to Muhammad point to Muhammad, and then Muhammad gave us the way to practice this faith correctly. So if you have a revelation or you think God's speaking to you, but it detracts, from like these five tenets or what we believe is at the core of the religion, then we don't accept what you're preaching as being a so God. Essentially, it's just that the things that he was a conduit for are the things that matter. Yes, right, exactly. Not necessarily yep. that, I guess. I so guess like Christians consider Jesus to be the final word. Like yeah. if anyone right. comes after Jesus with a different message, he's like, that isn't from me. Right. So, and Muslims believe that about Muhammad. So it's like, there's this is it. Because if we, um, as we look at these things, for Muslims, Islam, like no one's excluded from believing these things. So they would point to Christianity and they would say, your emphasis on the idea that like salvation is through Jesus Christ is a very exclusive view. And that's not about God. Like they, the, you know, a central issue for Muslims is the Trinity and the idea of like God is three in one. So if you look at the practices of Islam, the argument for Muslims is to say, no one is excluded here. Um, and therefore, like anything that, anything that would probably come next would be something that would make it more exclusive. Does that, so, so like that's part of how Muslims say, that's why there hasn't been anything else. Mm -hmm. So Because it hasn't changed. Right, exactly. So we don't talk about them like Joseph Smith. We'll just leave that one. <laughs> so... Um, so the next, um, the next tenet for Muslims is the, is the Salat or the Salah. Um, either one works depending on the transliteration, which is the five daily prayers. So Muslims pray um, at the first sliver of sunlight in the morning, um, in the mid-morning, at midday, um, at, uh, in the evening, and then again when the sun sets. And so I bet a lot of people are probably familiar with this. Um, these are recited prayers. These are not like free-form um, spoken word prayers. These are like very specific prayers that all around the world and ever since the time of the prophet, people are praying these same prayers. And it's an act of sort of solidarity with Muslims all around the world. Um, and you can offer your own personal supplications after you perform the ritual prayer. Muslims do um, pray just sort of preform um, to God. I've been in Muslim schools where, where kids are like praying for and this was back in the day, but like praying for, you know, like a new Sega Genesis, it tells you all like a Sega Genesis or um, whatever. So it's not that we don't, it's not that they don't just pray um, sort of in a more of a direct type of communication to God. But the emphasis on these prayers is that these are supplications of God's, like to affirm who God is. So these are not prayers about you. These are prayers to like affirm God's greatness. And the point of them happening at five times a day is that you are constantly being reoriented to that which is the most powerful. So too bad if it's inconvenient. Um, you know, too bad if you might be embarrassed with wherever you maybe need to do it. Like, this is a reminder of who um, rules your day. I mean, I remember once having a Muslim friend say to me, kindly though, like point at my watch, and he's like, yeah, that's your God. Like, yeah. you know, this is, like, like, who set the sun and moon and stars into place? God did, that's who we, that's where we orient around. So you were gonna ask a question. Uh, is this another one of the, the tenets that came from Yes. Yep. Yep. And so prayer, would, prayer was already practiced, but the idea of like this five times a day sort of ritualistic prayer is something that happens in the um, under the guidance of Muhammad in his community through a revelation. Like a revelation reveals we're going to pray. So this is very based in like 
humans are very yeah to just yeah this is based in like you're starting to grow a community and again there's a lot of parallels to Judaism part of protecting a community is to say we gotta all start doing the same things and we gotta have that sort of be at our core right like maybe we can loosen up over time but but as we start we need to have things that keep us all kind of functioning on the same um on this you know in the same pattern and so it's seen as a protective measure um to say again that no matter where you are in the world um, you go into a mosque at these times, and people are praying. And if you know it in Arabic, um, then you're gonna you're gonna fit right in. So whether you're a, you know whether you're a Muslim who's coming from Detroit, Michigan, and is going to um, Mecca, or you're going to um, Indonesia, you're going to feel at home in a mosque because you already know um, what to do. So the um, next pillar is called. Um, sorry. Next pillar is called the psalm, which is fasting. <clears throat> so Muslims fasted multiple times throughout the year, but they do fast for an entire month during what is called the month of Ramadan. Um, and Ramadan is the um, 11th month in the Islamic lunar calendar. So for Muslims, um, though today is uh, November, whatever it is, I don't even know, 26th, November something. Um, 2016, for Muslims, they also practice their religion according to the lunar cycle. So, um, and, that religion, and that cycle started with the time of Muhammad's revelation. So for Muslims, their religious calendar um, is always fluctuating. So they, they fast for one month um, from sunrise to sunset every day, and then they break the fast in the evening. Um, and at the end of the fast, there is a celebration. Um, Eid is the word for celebration in Arabic. Eid Mubarak, this is actually just a postcard um, that... Uh, was sent to me by a Muslim friend. Uh, so you send each other, um, you send each other uh, Eid greetings at the end of the month. You give each other gifts. Children make sort of Eid lists and um, ask for things that they would get from their family members. But the significance was to commemorate um, Prophet Muhammad's hardship and to sacrifice, cleanse oneself, and be renewed, and to recognize your dependence on God. So like a daily act of dependence every day while you're fasting. So when Ramadan happened this year which was in the summer, I mean, you'd be fasting from like 5.45 a.m. until about 9.15, 9.30. Does it happen several times a year? Once a year, once a year for a month. But is it the same time of year every year? No, it's, it, it, so like it fluctuates. So like when I first started teaching about, we've gone all the way around the calendar. When I first started teaching about Islam, it was in September. It's made its way all the way back now until August, so for about 11 years, yeah. Or to August, yeah, so like this coming year, it'll be earlier, it'll be early in June, right. I think. Hmm? Because it's by the lunar calendar, so it's like they're following the lunar cycle, so it always is moving a little bit. Okay, I that's the extent of my science. So, but you know, you don't you don't start fasting until you are um, of an age where you can you can do it. I mean, kids usually by middle school or high school fast. When kids are in elementary, parents kind of practice fasting with them, so they might fast from, like, their afternoon snack between getting home from school and dinner, which only hurts the mother, really. But, so you're not forced into fasting. I mean, you, and if you, you're exempt from fasting, if you have a medical issue of some kind, if you're pregnant, there's a variety of different, you make it up later in the year, but there's exemptions for fasting. It's actually, side note, very significant concern in our healthcare community because often, depending upon um, more more characteristic with some of our more recent Somali immigrants, the, the can you be can you be hooked up to an IV 
Like, and so there's, there's some really interesting ramifications for the way our healthcare system is navigating some of these religious questions. The next pillar is called zakat, which means purity. So the word itself, the root of the word means purity, but this is your obligatory almsgiving. Almsgiving is different than charity. I did a study a few years ago on the difference between tithe and charity in the Bible because I didn't really get that they were different. And so why, why do we say tithes and offerings? It's because tithe is required. Um, offerings are above and beyond. And so zakat is required. So it is what is required of you. It's about 2 to 2.5% two of one's total income. Um, so it's not like, it's like total income. It's all your assets. So like whatever you own, you give away 2 to 2.5% two of that every year. Um, and so if that means that you are, and to, still to this day, a Bedouin shepherd um, in parts of Arabia, then it's 2 to 2.5% two, two of your flock. It's whatever, whatever your possessions are. So for Muslims in the United States, whatever their home is worth, whatever, whatever assets they have, 2.5% of that they give away every year. And that is given to the broader, what's called the Islamic Ummah. The word Ummah means global Muslim community. So you don't, they don't have the same structure as I give it to my local mosque. Muslims don't belong to mosques. They don't have mosque membership. So um, you don't have to give it to your local mosque. You have to give it more broadly to the entire Muslim community. <coughs> Years ago, when there was the tsunami in, in um, Indonesia, um, I know that you know there was this real emphasis in the United States on we need to really direct zakat giving in the U.S. to Indonesia because the vast majority of those impacted were Muslim because Indonesia is the most populous Muslim country in the world. So only about 10% of the um, global population of Muslims are Arab. So the whole idea that like Arab and Islam are the same is not uh, is not quite accurate. So oops. Yeah, so the significance is that it's a personal responsibility to ease the economic hardships of everybody. Yeah. Is there like a simple... Yeah, like giving like structure? Yeah, so so there's all kinds. So there's also so like even within the United States, there's a couple of different kind of large zakat charities where they're kind of the typical ones that most Muslims in the United States would give money to. This was actually a huge issue after September 11th because many Islamic charities were just shut down, like just yeah. shut down. And so there was actually this real crisis within the American Muslim communities to say like, like you're you know like it was just it was a huge issue. So. Um, there are a couple of central ones, but there's also a lot of local ones. Um, I I know some folks who actually run one called like Zakat, it's called Zakat something, I can't remember, here in the Twin Cities, that's all about local food shelves. So like the whole thing is like. So they kind of just use that organization yep. to filter it through yep. and put it out where it's supposed yep. to go. So usually it's actually seen as a protective measure that money doesn't go to the mosque. Like like money that goes to the mosque is through kind of like our, our model of offerings. It's like we have to do fundraisers for the mosque like because it's putting too much power in the hands of like one entity. So by having that be sort of taken care of in other in other ways, it's seen as sort of being a protective measure over like one mosque becoming dominant over another. So or or more corrupt. Just some things to learn from. I have a question. Question for your name, ma'am. My name is Sister Wife. Yes, <laughs> it's my Sister Wife. It was great, actually. I just no, Yeah. Oh, like they had just found this out. 
because what, what, but when you think about the reciprocal viewpoint, yeah. I mean, what a large Christian charity or organization, would we give tithe? Like, because this is required, this yeah. is like the requirement, and you think of kind of that level of trust to say, we're giving you a Christian, because we think you can be more effective. We think that yeah. you can do more with it. Um, just like, side note, a few weeks ago, um, I did a clothing drive at, on my campus for Syrian refugees. It's very difficult to actually get things into Syria right now, and so we partnered with a, um, a mosque on the west side of the cities that was packing a um, shipping crate, like a shipping container, that was actually going to make it into Syria, because they have connections, but do not. Um, and it was very humbling to me when we brought these things to this mosque to have the, um, not the imam, but a leader of the mosque just say to us, like, like it is so, um, a, a, it is so um, comforting to us or to our Muslim community that you as Christians aren't afraid of us. Like, I know, gross, right? But at the same time, like, um, that was just very powerful to me. I mean, it was like, like, you you think that we're afraid of you, but like, we are afraid. Like, like people are. So that's a very real, it's like, who really should be? I mean, yeah. But I, I mean, I wanted to thank you for explaining that. Yeah. I don't think, like, the, the folks that feed the children that were worried about this understood it came from their churches. Or, or like, yeah, the like, lack of the, the tithe that yeah. we are accustomed to. Yes, I mean? yes. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, it's a very different yeah. type of function. Yeah, yeah, it's not just an offering. It's a part of their religion. Yeah, it's a requirement. And yeah. they're giving it to a Christian organization. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I'm floored by that. Because they actually think that we worship the same. So, oh. I know, I know, I know, I'm just saying, so yeah, but that just really shows you that that's really, that's a very powerful story, Kelly, story. Like, if the children would like to learn more about it, I'll give you my card. <laughs> but, uh, the last pillar is um, called Hajj, which um, I showed you the image at the very beginning, but for Muslims, this is, this is, um, so, so again, like, look at the, the theme here is like observable acts, observable acts. Um, and so, uh, Hajj is uh, an expectation once in your lifetime for every able-bodied Muslim, and that's kind of actually even the language from the Quran, is able-bodied. And able-bodied means physically able, it actually means um, like financially able. Um, going on Hajj is very expensive in the United States, an economy package um, for Hajj last year cost about $4,000. So it's, a, it's an expensive journey, but you travel to Mecca in Saudi Arabia and for um, essentially about seven to ten days um, in unison with two and a half million other people, you perform. Um, and this is the this is the five steps of Hajj. It's really interesting. I can recommend some great documentaries on Hajj to sort of visually see it and understand it better. But you you perform pilgrimage. So pilgrimage is a central tenet within Islam, and it is um, retracing essentially the steps of the Prophet. But it's not to emulate the Prophet. It's to emulate like important points in um, the Abrahamic tradition. So you, um, one of the steps of Hajj is to um, essentially stand at these big stone pillars and to throw small rocks at the pillars and it is to represent, um, you are repelling Satan, you are defying Satan as you do this and for Muslims that is commemorating when Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice um, his son for Muslims, they believe that that's Ishmael or Ismail in the Arabic, not um, Isaac. But and that Satan is trying to tell Abraham, like, don't do this. That's crazy. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, this is this whole obedience thing has gone too far. And so, for Muslims, that like very physical act of like throwing these stones at this pillar is commemorating Abraham's resistance of the devil. 
So every one of those steps of Hajj is a commemoration of kind of an important part of the faith. So, kind of hard to see. So these are, and I think these actually answer some questions that uh, I think are, based on some of the things you've asked, I think are probably in there. So just a couple of key ideas, and then Luke, I'll like wrap yeah. it up and turn it to you. But um, for Muslims, as I said, God, um, Allah, which is the Arabic name for the, for the one God, the creator of God, um, is identified in the Quran as transcendent, all-powerful, um, the all-knowing creator, the sustainer, order, and judge of the universe. So this is an English translation from the Arabic. There's 99 most beautiful names of God in the Quran. Um, the way that I sort of explain this to students is that God in the Quran is sort of different than um, the ways in which we talk about God in Christianity, particularly because of the Trinity and then the characteristics that we attribute um, to God. For Muslims, God is not can't really be thought of as a person. Um, I think of it like this, when we say that uh, the most important characteristic for Muslims of God is that God is merciful. So in Christianity, if I were to say, okay, what is God? I think a common response is usually like, God is love. Like that's what we, that's kind of the main scripture that we think of. For Muslims, God is merciful. Like that's the most, it's um, al-Rahman, al-Rahim. They say that God is God is most merciful. Um, and then when they say al-Rahim, um, it's Arabic for saying God is mercy, like God embodies mercy. So it's sort of like the idea of saying, you know, we can speak about the characteristics of Kelly, but when we say Kelly is Kelly, we, we get the idea that she's embodied, you know, like she embodies more than just characteristics, like she is that. Um, and that's how Muslims view God. So therefore, the idea that like God, who cannot be confined to a person and came to earth as a person, is something Muslims are just like, that is sacrilegious to me. Like the idea that like God walked among us, that God walked in, now again, like I'm understanding hopefully that what we love about Jesus are these exact things, that like God came and, came and walked in our dirtiness, that God was like in this just physically dirty world, just, you know, like aside from the gross mental dirtiness of our world, like Muslims are like, I just can't give put my God, my God in that space. So for them, it's a that is it's a it's an issue of um, blasphemy to think that God functioned as man because God didn't need to, in their opinion. God reveals Himself. And this kind of gets to your question about like prophets through three ways through creation. So everything's created by God. So when we look around the earth, when we interact with the earth, Islam has never quite felt the same tension historically over science. Um, that has existed in Christianity, uh, philosophy, things like that. Um, there's a there's a really important Islamic philosopher who um, circulates the idea that like all truth is God's truth. If you've heard that phrase, it comes from an Islamic philosopher named Averroes. Um, and the idea that like anything we anything we prove in nature to be true is God revealing himself to us because God speaks to, because why because nature is equalizing. So nature transcends culture, it transcends gender, it transcends education, it transcends disability. Like, we all can experience nature, and so there's a consistency in it. That's how God reveals himself to us. Um, God reveals himself through revelation, through giving words to prophets. So God um, speaks to Muhammad specifically, but prophets before him, and then finally God reveals himself through actions and history. So for Muslims, um, God is in control. Um, and a common phrase you would hear Muslims say is uh, that uh, inshallah, God willing. Um, and, it's not, and it's not something they take lightly. So even like a couple of weeks ago when I was taking these coats to this um, charity and I said, okay, I'll be there. I'm talking to, um, on the phone and I say, I'll be there in a half an hour. And the response was inshallah. Like if, that, if that's what God wills for you, like literally every step you take is like, if God, if God wills that for you, it's a constant reminder again of who's in charge. 
So, so those are the five basic tenets. I feel like I just scratched the surface, but I could just be here all day. So I want to, um, I guess, I mean, I have other things I can talk about. I can talk about geography. <laughs> do, the, do the geography. Okay. When I was looking through, I thought that was really interesting. Okay, yeah, sure. So just really quickly, I mean, I, I try to hit on this because I think it's, it's, a, it's a question people have. So yeah. um, again, like from studying the language, jihad is an Arabic word. The roots in the word are the um, J-H-D. That root means striving to strive against. It's a physical exertion or it can be a mental exertion. It can be a spiritual exertion. So there's two jihads in Islam as they're talked about in the Quran. There's what's called the lesser jihad and the greater jihad. The lesser jihad can apply to conflict, to physical conflict. So when we think about when we hear, oh, jihad means holy war. It doesn't mean holy war. But holy war can be a type of jihad. It's a lesser form of jihad that is a struggle, a striving against <clears throat> that which prevents you from being submitted to God, okay? So that can be a justification for any terrible thing that one would wanna do if you can say, this is preventing me from being able to practice my religion or to be able to honor God. So jihad as the form of like war or a physical struggle against somebody else, yes, it can mean that, but the word doesn't mean that. The greater jihad is the internal struggle to strive against that which prevents you from seeking God. Um, I've been in, uh, I do ethnographic work where I kind of spend time in Muslim communities and I've been in um, forms of Alcoholic Anonymous that are Muslim circles that talk about alcoholism as a jihad. Um, I've been in third grade classrooms where teachers are teaching lessons about gossip as a jihad and excluding people um, as something that we have to strive against. Um, eating disorders are something that could be referred to as a jihad. Um, I've heard a firefighter talk about like his fear of public speaking as his jihad to overcome because it was preventing him from doing the work that God had called him to do in his community. So jihad means struggle or to strive against. Um, and for the majority of Muslims, jihad is something personal. So, but the justification for why it's used as violence is because it does function in the Quran as like jihad can be, the lesser jihad can be a striving against that which is preventing you from practicing your religion. Which can very well be Christianity. Well, yeah, I mean, and so, um, yeah, so, so, that, so again, you know, it's sort of, is it, is it right to say it, it's, you know, it induces violence? Well, sure, it does, but um, that doesn't mean that that's what it always means. No. So, yeah. So, that's good stuff. What kind of questions do we got then, if anyone wants to throw some? <laughs> <laughs> Islam through the lens of history is the fact that like 
this, this emphasis on a very literal, like it's punishable by death, is a new thing. We don't, we don't have any historical evidence that like, this is the way it's always been since the time, like, it's not there. So it's actually kind of been more of a, um, a practical, I mean, that sounds terrible to say practical application, but a very literal application, really within like the last hundred years. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, like, again, like it has to do with like geopolitical, like your location. It has to do with um, views on gender that aren't necessary, that, that, that come out of um, interpretations. So that happens. Now, in the United States, we even know that to some extent that happens. We've had, we've had cases of that where that has happened here. Um, it is a very small minority. And we also have, I mean, if, if you think that 1.5 billion people in the world are Muslim, um, if that were a common practice, we certainly would hear about it a lot more. And out of that 1.5 billion people, I would argue that almost half of those are secular Muslims. Like Islam is their tradition, but at the same time, it's not something that they are actively sort of living out and pursuing every day. In the Quran, there are, but to, but to kind of like give a literal answer to your question, in the Quran, there are verses that talk about the penalty for like leaving the community. And the word that talks about the idea of like, like punishable by death, um, it, it, again, it depends on how you interpret scripture uh, in a more progressive and I think actually very common reading of those texts. The, the answer is sort of like saying, it's the whole idea, the, okay, in Christian scripture, like what happens to you when you leave the flock, right? Like, like if you leave, like, when, like now, you know, the whole idea of if we think of ourselves in the analogy of when we stray from the shepherd, like what's the concern? What's the fear? The fear is, is that we will, like death is what will happen to us. So the verse kind of functions similarly in that the interpretation of the verse, if taken literally, means like if you leave the, if you leave the fold, you should be killed. Um, a more sort of a more open-minded reading of the verse to not read it literally is to say because when you leave the community, you're more open to harm. So I don't know if that helps or yeah. playbook. So Muslims that I know are just as dismissive, but no one's listening 
You know, like I could give so many examples of different important organizations, like the Islamic equivalent of, I mean, like, actually, I think for many of you, just knowing what I do about your church, I guess I would argue that many of like the loud Christian bodies, like organized Christian bodies in this country, I know a lot of people in here would want nothing to do with. So, you know, um, and so the hard part is, is that, you know, when you're the majority, again, you kind of get the benefit of the doubt. It's like, I've never felt the need to kind of, you know, like, how can I more formally organize? Like, I can just dismiss Terry Jones, I think was his name. And you can just, they're always, the last names are always Jones. Like, you can just dismiss it. You can just dismiss it and say, like, mm, that's not me. Like, that's crazy. Muslims do not get that same privilege. And the hard part is, is that I do think that they, that they do that. I will tell you, like, as a Christian, especially actually here in the Twin Cities, um, the Muslim community, which comes from a, it's not just like a Somali community, it's about a variety of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, including just flat out American. Mm -hmm. um, and with nothing else in your, in your, you know, in the last hundred years besides being American. It's now pronounced American. American, <laughs> right? But, um, but, um. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but, um. They, they are dismissive of it, and it's like, and, and I think they actually do more, but it's sort of like, who is listening? What, what does that look like? How do you kind of try to form a collective to speak out against it? And then I also will say that there's part of me that resonates with a few Muslim friends who are like, I, you know what? I just, um, yeah, I got to go back to work at Medtronic tomorrow. I'm trying to get my kids through school, and we like are in three soccer teams, and I'm just too freaking busy. Um, which shows you exactly how American they are. Um, but I think that that's what's difficult, is that there are there are so, so many Muslims who speak out against that, but they don't get heard. Um, and then there's also kind of like sometimes the rebellious, like, why should I have to? Like, why, that isn't me. Why do I have to play by a different uh, set of rules? Why do I have to defend what's going on in my religion? Um, why can't my voice and what I, how I live my life be just as powerful as what extremism is doing, yeah. Islam does not have inherently in it like a 
um, a missionary call. Like, when Islam even started, it actually did see itself as sort of pure and somewhat set apart to the point where the whole idea that Muslims went out and, and, and mass converted people to Islam um, didn't happen because they actually saw themselves as sort of superior. So it was like, well, I don't know that I want you to be Muslim because you might mess up what we have going. <laughs> um, truthfully, I mean, that's, and so I think that the, the point is to turn around and say, it's actually not the goal of the religion is to, is to like convert um, everybody. There's really no evidence of that because again, then why aren't people like welcoming ISIS with open arms? They're not. 99% of the people killed by ISIS are Muslims. It's, you know, like they, I only know one person who's been personally affected by terrorism. She is from Syria. Um, you know, so I think that, I do think statistics are helpful and I think it does work sometimes to turn it around and to say like, well, would you want Muslims to be afraid about the idea that Christians actively are supposed to be, depending on your interpretation, pursuing getting more people to be Christians? And are you are you doing that, Mom and Dad? Like is that what you know? Like, because often what people feel most attached to in their religion, they're not practicing. You know, it's like so when I say to students, like, why are you all? If this is what we really believe is the most important thing, is that we got to go make Muslims Christians, why are you all sitting here? Like, how selfish of you. Like, get up, get out. And nobody does. So, are groups like ISIS or the Taliban, yeah. Al Qaeda, like, are those, are they kind of employing that literal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're employing a very literal interpretation, although I would argue, and I think, and again, kind of thinking as a history professor, um, religion, we, and we should be able to relate to this. Like, even if we look at our country, because I think you all know who. Who, who was very active in this election in terms of the general American body when it came to religious people, um, religion is very powerful to people who have been marginalized. Now that can be really, really good, obviously. That's the beauty of our religion and Christianity, I think, is it's like that it speaks to those that have been marginalized. The scary thing is, is the ways in which that in the midst of broader disunity, political disunity, economic upheaval, and we look at when we look at the places in the world where ISIS, the Taliban, um, you know, to some extent Al Qaeda, but it's kind of its own thing. If you want to look at political groups like Hezbollah or Hamas, um, religion becomes a unifier that supersedes other people's differences, and religion is very, very is a very powerful tool to do that because you literally believe, like again, that like. God is on our side, that like this is what God wants, and it's a very unifying thing. So yes, a very literal interpretation, but I would also argue like a very poor interpretation, and also not a lot of interest really in interpretation. Like just not, I mean, same, you know, like like there, there, there aren't like ISIS clerics that are traveling with ISIS, <laughs> like constant, like it's, it's religion as a very powerful political tool in contexts where you don't have other political tools to help you. And I mean, I again, I see that parallel in our own country. It was like, politics is failing us. Why is it failing us? Then we better we better hold up religion, you know, more strongly, and it, and it worked in a certain respect. You, you sir. You talked about something earlier about, um, because something I've heard, like, my dad say, actually, was, uh, well, why don't you hear the moderate I think you said that they are, but nobody's listening. So is is, is that is that the case? Because I mean, yeah. that, that, that that's a that's a, I think that's an example that I've heard a lot of people use. That well, all Muslims believe it, but you don't hear the moderates speaking out. Right, and the moderates do speak out, but again, I think it's like where do people what what do people listen to? 
if you if you choose solely your own sources, then you're probably not hearing the moderates. I also would argue, and again, like I just sorry, like the geek history in me, but like moderatism speaks through middle class people living their lives. Like if 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 Muslims felt in this country the greatest thing that I mean. Like, and I don't want to make an us versus them dynamic, but you know what? America doesn't look like parts of, um, like, neighborhoods in London. America does not look like France. America does not look like, you know, um, I don't know, it's like, like Hamburg, Germany. And the reason for that is because Muslims in America are like, uh, I'm American. I like being American. I have a decent job. Um, I'm happy with the schools my kids are in. And, like, that is moderate, moderation speaking. It's saying, I, I'm living my life, and I've never been in conflict with you, and I'm a peaceful neighbor to you, so why, you know, so like, I think that is, the hard part is, is no one's listening, and nobody, I think even if you were to say, we're going to speak it out more clearly, I don't, I don't know that people give a lot of validity to that. Well, so, yeah. so, so could you, like, when, when the news media reports on terrorist events or right. something like that, uh, would, it, would it kind of balance it then to be to report on that, but to also report on the, it would, it would, if people would. Is that, is that not happening? I don't think it's happening. It happens some. I mean, I see some of it. It happens on, like, NPR and, um, you know, but, like, it, yeah, right? So, like, it, it does happen, but I don't think people listen. And I think that also, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it would help. When crazy Christians say crap yeah. on the news every right. freaking day, is there someone who's like, well, the majority of them probably don't believe this? Right. I mean, again, I think of how in the, in the last few weeks, and I'm by no means like a marginalized person, but I think of how even in the last couple months, I have felt like every person I've heard who, quote, represents me, I don't agree with it all. So I, I do think, you know, that happens to some respects to all religious groups. Yeah, I don't worry if I have a you. Yeah. But cool, why do you ask them? Are you guys all right going a little bit yeah. longer today? Um, I'm sorry that. Yeah, no, just get up and eat. I don't want anybody to get stuck. That's more of a, a, a couple of statements rather than a question. One, thank you for being here. This is fascinating um, and so timely. Um, and two, I struggle with the, the fact that we, that we as Americans and Christian Americans struggle with the concept that not everyone is um, you know, subscribing to more extreme created 
different playbooks for different groups of people. And we don't hold people to the same, um, to the same standards that we do ourselves. We're very gracious with ourselves. Taylor, you had a question? <laughs> Is it, is it legitimately practiced anywhere? 
Yeah. Um, so Sharia, it doesn't mean, um, the word itself doesn't mean law, it means the broad path, so it comes from the Quran. And um, Sharia was, is a, is a, Sharia is a man-made, a, like, man's attempt to, as best they can, create a body of law for governing a community to speak into the parts of community life that the Quran does not. So it's like, let's look to the text that we have and let's figure out what's that supposed to look like. Um, and so it's created out of a need to address things that the Islamic tradition does not. Um, like for Muslims, it, again, it's an interpretation issue. So Muslims in America would say, yeah, we practice aspects of Sharia um, the same way that Christians would practice, you, you obey the Ten Commandments or you do, you do things in your own life. Do they have to be sort of enforced? Now, there are places where they are actually manifested in law. Nigeria is one of them. Um, parts of Nigeria. Um, uh, Afghanistan is one of them. Pakistan is one of them. Iran um, is another example. Is it yeah. becoming more prevalent? No. Is it, or is it uh, losing? Um, it goes back and forth. So much like our own, <coughs> our own kind of like political situation, if we were to sort of take a lens out, like a broad view, if this were 200 years from now, I'd be able to look at the 19th, 20th, and 21st century and be able to say, oh, here's where Sharia was in practice in Nigeria. Here, like Sharia is practiced in Nigeria now. It wasn't in the 1950s. So right, right now it's, it's lessening? It depends on where you're talking about. World, so like, world, worldwide. So, well, again, it, it depends on where you're talking about. Like in Nigeria, it's been strengthened. In Iran, it changes. So it was stronger in Iran under President so, Mak Like it, it, So it's constantly fluctuating. It's constantly fluctuating. In Indonesia, it's constantly fluctuating. It's fluctuating according to like political leadership. So, okay. so it's a manifestation of like religion in the law. Like, yeah. Yep. And so for Muslims, this is important. Like it is like like marrying in the correct way. Like there are there are aspects of Sharia that um, Muslims would say like I want to do it according to the way that my religion says to do it. interpretation of scripture. So for Muslims, because everything is focused sort of on practice, so just this is a good quick question to answer. Like when it comes to wearing the hijab, um, which is just headscarf, there's other, you know, depending on your culture and your own decision, you can wear more or put less than that. The verse is, it comes directly from a verse in the Quran that talks about modesty. So like women should cover themselves and this has to do with modesty. That The verse actually goes on to talk about how men should do the same thing. Um, and depending upon who you are, like I know Muslim women who would be like, every woman needs to cover, it's required, the Quran makes it clear, and then I know other Muslim women who are like, modesty is a behavior, it's not a, it's not a covering. In the United States, like, I mean, the, the, I think the hard part is, is for women who do not cover, they often actually feel like a kind of internal kind of, like, like an internal community judgment, because it's like, I don't cover, so no one knows I'm Muslim, and automatically, like, a Muslim woman who is wearing hijab is always going to be seen as, like, a religious authority over me because I choose not to. Same thing as being a Catholic woman who believes in pro-life. Right. You, you get to hide that unless somebody specifically asks you. Right, it. right. So, um, but, I mean, there's, we have, you know, it's, it's interesting because there have been Islam, predominantly Islamic societies where 
hijab has been outlawed, like women can't wear hijab, there's places where they have to, um, obviously, and that, that, that same thing has, like, it's different all throughout history. So there, there's places, there's times in history where only really wealthy women wore hijab, and it was actually like a sign of wealth. There's other parts of, there's parts of Egypt where wearing hijab like totally means you're poor and no wealthy one. You know, so it's interesting because it, in America, hijab is increasingly kind of popular because in a way, young Muslim women in particular are like, it, it, it's kind of like a point, I mean, I don't want to say it's a point of pride because it's a very personal decision, but it's like, I'm not, you know, like it's almost tattoo, it's almost like tattoo-like in a way. It's like, I'm not going to be ashamed of who I am. And so... Like it, it's inc and, and yet then the, the previous generation, the mothers and the grandmothers are like, don't do that. Like they, they you know, so it, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting tension. Like I, like two of my friends, when they started wearing a job, their dads were like, please don't, because they were worried about like, they were worried they were going to draw attention to themselves, which is the exact opposite kind of assumption we make, which is like a dad made a girl do that. But that happens too. I think we're going to call yeah. it right there. And uh, that was amazing, though. That was such great stuff. We really appreciate you coming out. I mean, wow. We could yeah, probably be yeah, here all day and hang back. out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh, we'll spend a Saturday together. We'll just have, like, roaming food. That's and, uh, fine. <laughs> just keep eating.